welcome you to part four of the book of Revelation and End Times. We are looking at chapter three today. We finalized a little bit of chapter two, but we are looking at chapter three, and we will be finishing up the letters to the seven churches. So I hope you enjoy it. opportunity we have to come to study your holy word we ask that you continue to speak into our hearts and our minds as we look at some very challenging letters to the churches and especially the last one and to Laodicea we we will resonate with that and it will call us to accountability and I just pray that uh, you you open our hearts and our minds to begin to work uh in your will and what you want for us and even for the church and the church within our own nation and worldwide. And so thank you again for uh, those who have gathered and we look forward to uh, what you have for us in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. Well, let me say a couple of things logistic wise that are important for us is that we are uh, this week, we're going to try to finish up chapter 2. We're going to do all of chapter 3. We should not have a problem with that. Actually, we'll, uh, conversation will take us on to uh, through the hour easily. Then, session 2 basically starts. So, we're off next Wednesday. So, just letting you know that we're off next Wednesday. So, we're trying to have some different sessions throughout the fall. It also gives our teachers a break, gives me an opportunity to do other things and catch back up on some of my study. And then October 14th, we'll be back. We're not going to be doing a chapter on our schedule. Just a reminder, when we meet again in two weeks, it will be talking about the rapture. So if you have any questions about the raptures, any theories about the raptures, anything that you want to do, we're going to be discussing those uh, at that time. So that's going to help us move forward into the rest of our book as well and, and sort of that biblical understanding of what we're looking at. So it's called Exposing the Rapture because we're going to look at the biblical side of the rapture and not so, so much the fictitious side. And we're going to see where the fictitious side has been made up on some things and... Um, Ultimately, uh, we will probably find a different understanding of what others have created as the rapture. So, look forward to that conversation. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, I'm not going to try to convince you really of anything. I think the Bible will speak for itself and our understanding of how we see things. So, so that's kind of uh, what we're going to be doing. So, I'm going to start the uh, recording of this video for us so okay great okay all right well again it's great to have everybody here and we're going to start where we left off we left off in verse 24 of chapter 2 last week we've been talking about the church at Thyatira reminding you a little bit about this letter, it's one of it's the longest of all the seven letters to the seven churches. Thyatira is a place that is predominantly controlled by the trade guilds. So for you to have a job, it also meant that you probably had to worship a pagan god or show some allegiance to that pagan god. So you can see where that might influence people. And uh, the church overall, they have some strengths in this church. This church demonstrates love and faith and service, patient endurance. It also says in verse 8, 19 that the works in which they have done are greater than the first. And so they continue to grow in their faith. And so that's a, that's a wonderful uh, example to us as well. Now there are some failures of this church, and so they're to- they're tolerating some pagan or false teachings. This Jezebel, whether the lady's name was actually Jezebel or not, is really not the the issue. Uh, her name could have been Sue or Carol or whatever, but she represented Jezebel who was found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and she was married to Ahab and and he allowed her to do some pagan worship stuff and it influenced the entire northern kingdom 
and then also the southern kingdom. And so it, she was the most influential sort of evil influencer of the Jewish history. So that comes into play with just, you could say, hey, he was, you might use, uh, well, they were influenced by the Jezebel, or they were influenced by the money, or they were influenced by the, you know, the the stardom. You know, it's kind of that sort of understanding a little bit. But this person is in their midst and, and causing some problems. There's some instructions. Repent. Judgment's coming. You should hold fast to what you, where you came from until I come. And so there's a lot of that imagery going on. And so we'll pick up in verse 24. I'll reread 24 through 29. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned from, uh, learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my father to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. So, in 24 through 29, we also have the promises. So, if they do the things that Christ is sort of asking them to do, God will, uh, who sees beyond, like, the appearances, he sees into the hearts and minds. We see that in verse 23. And, and he's not going to add to their burdens. Their burdens are enough. Uh, he is not a, you know, Jesus says, my burden is light, right? And so this is uh, an assurance that they have got some stuff that they're dealing with. They're always kind of dealing with pressures of life or whatever, and, and he's not going to add more to their to their life and, and be more of a burden. He is going to give them authority over the nations, and we look at that and we go, whoa, you know, that's that's pretty interesting. We hear that same sort of language in Psalm chapter 2, and you can write this as a reference, I'm going to read it, Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, and it says, only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession, you will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. So you have this similar language. Again, John is recasting Old Testament language. Jesus is recasting Old Testament language in this letter that um, to this particular church. We also hear the terminology of a uh, morning star. And we wonder, okay, so we're going to get this gift of a morning star. What exactly is a morning star? Well, you can think of it as a promise of resurrection. That could be the morning star. Um, you could also think about it as Jesus. Uh, you you were given Jesus. If you remain faithful, you're being given Jesus. And Jesus sacrificed himself for us once. He's, he's going to be given to us. Why do we say that? Well, in Revelation 22.16, almost at the end of the, the book of Revelation, we hear it says Jesus is the morning star, the bright morning star. So they're going to receive Christ. Okay, so that helps us. Now, there is some language throughout the Old Testament when it comes to bright and morning star and, and that I think is sort of intriguing. In Isaiah 14.2, we actually get an image, scholars say, of Lucifer being thrown from heaven. Okay, the Lucifer, the angel, being thrown from heaven. This is what it said, how you are fallen from heaven... O shining star, son of the morning, you have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. So you have some of this similar terminology going on there. It's like he's he's bright and he's shiny. Now in Daniel 12, 2, we, we also get, okay, what does that brightness come from? Though, ultimately, Lucifer was bright in the Lord. Just like those who are righteous are bright in the Lord. 
And that's what Christ is. He is the morning star. He is the bright morning star. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. So again, very common language that those who shine brightly for God, who reflect God, are bright. And so brings us back to the very reflection of God in Jesus Christ. And so he is the bright morning star. So I think that's an important imagery for us to explore and wanted to bring that up as well. And then, again, 29 is just closing. Let anyone who has an ear, basically any anybody, any church anywhere, any Christian anywhere, hear this, what I'm saying. So, uh, any questions, any thoughts about that closing of chapter 2? All right. Let's move on to, to chapter 3. So, I'll read this. This is the church at Sardis, and then we'll go back and look at the characteristics of the, the church and the culture in which they lived. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So, again, the language gets ramped up a little bit here as well. Uh, pretty strong language. We know that uh, this church, Sardis, was basically had lost its vitality, basically. And so, Sardis is a wealthy commercial center that the, the area is. It intersects five major roads uh, 700 years before this time in which John was writing these things down, there it was a great city. It was like one of the greatest cities. It's not that it's not a great city at this time, but it was like one of the top-notch great cities. Now, fast forward to 17 uh, A.D., and you get a huge earthquake that came to Sardis. And that earthquake basically destroyed most of the city. Now, Emperor Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius, was very generous. This is a Roman city, but it, he was very generous with the Roman funds, and he rebuilt the entire city with Roman funds. They didn't have to put any of their money in. It was just the Roman funds. And so they were very, very loyal to the Roman Empire as a sign of gratitude to what they had received, which was a brand new city. Now, they were positioned on a plain and a valley. They were alongside the river Hermas, and they had a characteristic about the city. And I, I don't know, I wrote this down some time ago. I can't exactly remember where this would come from, but they were a lazy city. And what does it mean by a lazy city? They, actually, the history of the city was is that the, his, the city was taken over two different times, overthrown two different times because they just simply had no watchmen to watch the, the, the gates of the city. And so they just, they were lazy. They didn't want to watch or the watchmen fell asleep or whatever and all of a sudden they were just, they were taken over and, and ruled by another. So very interesting uh, kind of dilemma uh, or characteristic, sorry, of their city which you can kind of see play out a little bit in the culture of this particular church. Now, we know Jesus is speaking. We hear title again, Seven Spirits. Is it like 
seven spirits out there, different spirits. We talked about the gifts of the spirit. We talked about some a list of the gift of the spirit in the Old Testament when we looked at seven, but also seven is a completeness. So you could say complete spirit of God. The completeness of God is Jesus. And so he also has these seven stars, which we know are the churches. So that's kind of brings us up to speed on on all that sort of thing. Now, there are some strengths of this church. And remember, every church in the letter, strengths and failures and basically instructions and promises. And so the strengths of this church were there there was a faithful remnant that still existed. And so they, they had that also. There was no heresy or they weren't being attacked sort of by the heresies. They weren't allowing those things to, to come in. They basically had just settled. They, it's like they had arrived and they were okay with where they were at and they just didn't have any passion for for Jesus or the mission or anything. There wasn't really a, a lot of aliveness. In verse 2, it says, wake up. You know, strengthen yourself in what you once had or what you do have, basically. And so I look at that as a tipping point as well. There's a tipping point from, you could say, somebody on a cliff and they can go over the cliff and they're they're physically dead. You're, you're talking about spiritual death here that they have basically not done the things that they should. They've, they've, they've felt like they've arrived. They, they're not even really passionate about Christ anymore. And they're on this tipping point where they're spiritually going to go and they're going to fall and they're going to die. Uh, spiritually die and then the church is the assembly and that's kind of a, a scary image itself uh, to me it is and so there's a failure spiritual death that that's their their failure and there's some instructions right what are the instructions the same thing that we've been hearing again apocalyptic literature repent 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 and then it also says remember so remember your first love we've already heard that in one of the other letters obey so not only are you supposed to repent but then you got to do something you know you need to be obeying you need to be people of action and you ultimately you just need to wake up wake up from whatever slumbery non-passionate unpassionate sort of state that you're in and we hear in verse 4 and 5 this this white dressed in white there's some people there still a faithful remnant and they're gonna have they're dressed in in white. What is white? White's purity, and um, that's just a symbol for purity. They're, are they literally dressed in white and all walking around in, in white? Well, maybe, but maybe probably not. I mean, it's just it's a it means clean. It means uh, a baptism gown is white. That's why we put white on babies typically when we baptize them. When we were in the Holy Land, we saw the Coptic Church. The Coptic Christians from Egypt were there and they were all being, they all had white robes and they were all being baptized in the Jordan River or being, uh, remembering their baptism and they, they all had white robes on. And so it's festive, it's victorious, it means purity, it means resurrection, you know, white. That's important. So the promises to these churches was that you were going to wear a white robe. You were going to be pure. And then also their name would remain in the book of life. So any thoughts, any questions, discussion about any of that? Anything hits you? No one, uh, go ahead. Mhm. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Very good point. Uh it's it is. I mean, Jesus is always wanting people to hear, you know. He had something to say. And so that is a common phrase, especially to these these churches, and really to it's to all churches. It's really a blanket statement, you know. To to everybody needs to be listening who's reading this letter two thousand years later. So, um, big question came up with our men's study this morning as we talked about the Book of Life. Um, 
anybody, uh, everybody understand the book of life and their names in the book of life and you're good with that, you're all good. So, um, I know a lot of people worry about whether their name's in the book of life. How do you get your name in the book of life? Um, anybody have any thoughts about that? Yes. Mm-hmm. I will explain what I think I, uh, yes. I, I also heard something today that I, I thought was very excellent, and I'm always learning as well um, from a wise soul in our men's group. But So the book of life is, you could say, is it literally a book? Maybe so, right? Maybe God has this book up there, and hopefully he didn't leave your name out or whatever, and he turns the pages. But to me, the book of life is, any, is found through faith in Christ, right? Uh, we are righteous through faith in Christ. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus. It's faithfulness, and God's going to work all that stuff out and figure that stuff out. But I thought it was really interesting this morning, and I hadn't heard it put this way, and I, and I would totally agree with this, and, and I'm going to use this probably for the rest of my life, but that we're, all our names are in the book of life, and they're already there. Now, we know that we have a choice whether we want to keep it there or not. We can ignore God. We have free choice. We can say, no, I don't believe in Jesus and I don't care about God. I don't care about the Spirit. I don't care about anything. And we can literally, basically, we are erasing our name out of the book of life. So our assurance of salvation, our possibility, how that works, I don't know. Listen, we have free choice. We believe that as Wesleyans, that you can ignore God, you can turn away from God, fully believe that that has happened. Now, that happens. Now, that is going to be the hardest thing in your life to do if you already know God. And God, I think, has specific grace and measures that he has in place for certain people and and even those who don't hear the gospel fully and all that. But I'm going to let him figure that out. But you, you... you can be assured that you, if you're living in Christ and understand He is your Savior, your your name's in there. You're not you're not going anywhere. Now, can you just go live however you want to live and ignore God the rest of your life? No, you can't. So, we believe it, again in free will. So, that the Book of Life is it a literal thing? We hear it a lot, and I would say it's some sort of godly volume that has everybody's name in it you know so whether it's literally a book i don't know so that's my take on it any other thoughts anybody else anything else out there they've heard okay well let's uh move on let's yeah go ahead Mm mm-hmm It uh, could influence that for sure um, because of what Paul says a couple of times and then you have the tie-in in the book of life that you're predestined um, already. And, and we would agree that we wouldn't have Calvin's view of predestination, but we're predestined to be saved by Christ. So you, you could say that, whether we're predestined that our name's in the book of life and we can't do anything to get rid of it out of the book of life is, that's of course not our understanding Maybe that's Calvin's, um, but not ours anyway. But yeah, there's probably a big tie in there. Sure, Mark. Yeah. Um, anybody have anything else? It's an interesting concept, and we're probably going to see a little bit more of that. We'll discuss some more of it. We'll see some other relevant points as we hear about the Book of Life and, and some other. But we're about to get into. Uh, a time here in one of these letters that, uh, well, actually, it's this letter of Philadelphia that actually says that your name is going to be written in, like, the the new city. You're, you're going to be a pillar of one of God's temples. So, again, it's this imagery that you are assured of your salvation. You are there. You are, you are going to be present. Your name is going to be there, you know. Uh, you as a person will be present in resurrection there. So, so let's look at uh, the letter to Philadelphia in verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write: These are the words of the Holy One and the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look. 
I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear uh, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So let's look at Philadelphia. The town of Philadelphia remind us, or maybe it's in your notes, and it's a crossroads for three roads, and it's the youngest city of the seven cities in, in which these churches were contained. It has a Greek culture. It's a prosperous Greek culture. It had a center of trade. Actually, the name was, it was the gateway to the east. And so it kind of shows you how important it was. It had a grape industry, and thus because it had a grape industry, it also had a wine-producing industry. And so the they worshipped the temple, the biggest temple, pagan temple there was the, uh, the center. It was like the center of all of Asia or whatever, and probably Roman Empire of Dionysus worship. And that he is the Greek god of wine and fertility. He's also the Greek god of excess. So just overflowing of excess. I would say the main theme for this letter would be you're almost there, continue to endure. You're almost there, continue to endure. Just endure. So let's look at the opening statement, uh, who Jesus is, there's three great titles for Christ that we see in verse 7. He is the Holy One. And what does that mean? Why is he the Holy One? Because he's different. He's set apart, right? And so he's holy. The second one is the true one. What does that mean? Well, he is the reality. He's true. Like you're looking for truth. Other people are looking at He's actually present reality. He is the present reality, the truth, the true one. The third thing is we hear there is the key of David. And we wonder what that means. Uh, we can look actually at Isaiah 22, 22. We can see a reference to the that. And so we understand that there is this Old Testament uh, image being recast and the importance of the Messiah and who Jesus is. Now, there's the strengths of this church. And the strengths of the church is they have kept the words of God. They have kept God's words. They have not denied his name. And so what does that mean? Where are the, what are the failures of this church? Well, there are none. There, there's none, none listed. There are no failures of this church. They're just strengths. What can we know about some of their strengths? Well, we hear of this door. We hear of an open door in verse 8. And what is that door? You could say that door is also the gospel. The door is the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and it's like you have a door and you should invite people into that gospel, into that you know, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that open door could be a missionary opportunity in sharing the gospel. Like, there's a, a plethora of opportunities for you. You have an open door. I have given you an open door. You're attracting people with the gospel, and so go out and continue to do so. Um, now, verse 9. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think it 
to me is just simply his power, uh, the power of God. I mean, he what he opens, it's it's. I mean, no one's gonna shut down the gospel, uh, and what he has shut and he closed off, then no one's gonna open it up because they're not God. So again, that underlining narrative that. God is God. God's eternal. Rome is not all-powerful, and Rome is not eternal. You always have to remember that underlining narrative there so as well. And it's an affirmation to these people that if they're being persecuted or they're trying to endure through things, that it is working, and God is eternal. And again, it's it's not about their country. It's not about their city. It's not about their job. It's not about... I mean, it's it's grander than that. It's more eternal than that. So great, great, great question. So, um, so we have in verse nine we hear about the synagogue of Satan. We've already dealt with some of that devil and Satan and, and the Jews and and um, these to me and and I guess I don't know maybe it's through a commentary or whatever. But if I'm just reading that, I'm thinking. These are Jews that slander Jesus. These are Jews that slander Christians. These are Jews that say that's like not, you know, and, and whatever they're doing, they're lying about it or they're totally against it, and which is understandable, okay? But we hear this language that they're going to bow down, like that they're going to come to these Christians and they're going to bow down. Are they going to walk in and they're going to bow down and, and God's going to like push them down and make them bow to their knees? What does that mean? I think, again, the spiritual depth of the letter is so vitally important. We have to see the spiritual side of this. To me, we've all seen, and we probably, maybe in our own life, it's happened or whatever, but we have seen when people at times have rejected the gospel or rejected Christianity or whatever it, it might be, uh, that Christ has called them back, right? That actually they have either come back or they have began to know the very gospel that they were so against. And so this is a spiritual win. Like these people are ultimately who are so against you and they're a part of the synagogue of Satan, they're literally going to be changed. Like their hearts and minds are going to be changed. And they're going to come down one day and they're going to actually bow before you and they're going to ask for forgiveness, basically. And they're going to say, we were wrong. We were wrong. We know this Christ that you know. And so, again, to me, again, the spiritual picture, you know, more than just this literal picture of, oh gosh, you know, they're they're going to bow down like some sort of slave or whatever. Now, we get a picture in Zephaniah, if you're writing down references, Zephaniah 3, verses 14 through 20, and then there's just a reference there of people bowing down, and so it might be important for you to, to look at that if you'd like to. I'm not going to read it, but again, failures of the church... There are no failures of this church. They're, they're going strong. The instructions of the church are to walk through the door or to keep, you know, invite people into the door, right? And so this is an open door. And so if you do that, the promise is, is that you will actually, um, you know, you'll be kept from trial, this trial that's going to be coming on the whole world, Um and what does that mean? Um, probably ultimately in the end, the whole world is we know is going to be judged. And you're kept from a big lengthy trial. We know that our, our, in righteousness of Christ, when God looks at us, he, he sees total innocence and purity because of what Christ has already done for us. And so it could be, a, I would say it's an image, a reaffirmation of that very spiritual understanding um, but to keep keep us from the hour of trial, um, those who are faithful in Christ will not have to maybe worry about these final trials and tests and um, give account to everything because it's already. I mean, who who exactly knows? I think that that's a that could be a toss up. But I also think that they won't be fooled. This is another very important part of it that. I think is a characteristic of a Christian who's alive, is uh, spiritually alive. You're not going to be fooled by the trials that come when people try to 
to trick you or, or say that's not right or you know or, or come this way with me or go this way in this teaching or whatever it's like you won't be fooled you'll stay true because you have the holy spirit inside of you and verse 11 affirms again he's coming soon so he's coming soon hold fast so again this was relevant for them at this time um any any thoughts on any of that stuff okay um, uh, for me as well uh, those promises that you're going to be a pillar in the temple of God you're going to have your name you know there's not going to be any doubt where you're going to be like your name's going to be places you are going to be stationed in heaven you are a citizen of heaven and so that's a cool picture anybody who's enduring for the long haul, to know that there is going to be that in the long in the long run. Uh, to me as well, I also see that those people who are faithful to the church here and now on uh, earth are pillars of the church. I mean, there's so many of you that are just we're pillars of the church. You're holding the church up by your faithfulness and your generosity and your continued spirit, and so we are pillars of the church. It's just a great another great image for us to look at so all right anybody have anything else as we move into the last letter here so. mm-hmm. yeah a couple of questions i think that's just downright a synagogue of uh jews local jews who uh, are slandering and accusing again satan and devils a, a slanderer an accuser a tempter they're slandering they're accusing they're tempting these christians so that's basically what it is so yes mm-hmm Yeah, and so you have the synagogue of Satan, and those are slanderers. Those are folks that are out there that are trying to tear the church down. But the church, those faithful people need to understand that it's by the blood of Christ, it's by his righteousness that we are secured. It's not by our good works only. It's not by, oh, uh, you know, I, I used to struggle with that, and now I don't struggle. And all oh, then I struggled with it again. I must have backslid. Um, it's not that. It's the righteousness found through faith in Christ. So, well said. Well said. Uh, well, that's the assurance. It's like John Wesley. As a Wesleyan, you know, John Wesley uh, was all about the Holy Club, being methodical about following Christ. But he didn't have assurance of his faith until he, his heart was strangely warmed. As he was reading, you know, listening to a commentary on the book of Romans being read, and he fully understood that is righteousness through faith alone and not through your works. And so that's very important to reference as well. So, agreed. Okay, so let's hit the last letter, the Church of Laodicea. And, um,. I'm going to have a little fun. You're going to notice where I think this is why this is so relevant to us. And you probably, if you studied Revelation, you would already know how relevant it is to our culture. But it's it says this, verse 14, And to the angel of the church in America, right? It doesn't really say America, of course, but it, it could say America right there. Write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works, 
You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm or neither cold or hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white robes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and solved, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So, this is a... uh, it's a big letter, and this is very relevant to our to us. Uh, the Church of Laodicea. It was a great commercial, strategic center of the ancient world. It was actually one of the wealthiest commercial and financial centers of all the Roman Empire, other than Rome. And so, it was you could have the American dream there, right? You could have everything. Okay, it was at the junction of a couple of valleys intersection of three major not roads but highways roman highways it was famous for its black wool textile and clothing manufacturing it actually had a medical school there a medical center and it was famous for its eye salve and so we actually hear a reference to that in verse 18 and so, very relevant reference to, to this church. It also had the largest Jewish population in all of Asia, Roman Asia. So, that was important to, to know as well. Main theme for me would be, don't be indifferent, don't be lukewarm, be on fire for Jesus. So, that's basically what this letter is saying. Don't be lukewarm, don't be indifferent, be on fire for Jesus. So let's look at verse 14. This is where Jesus, we, again, we have some other identifiers of who he is. The true witness. Jesus is the true witness. He is the perfect representation of God. He is the revelation, right? The one and the true witness. He is a he is a origin of God's creation. So Jesus didn't wasn't an afterthought of God later on when we needed a Savior. He's been there since the beginning. He is part of creation. Okay, he is part of the Godhead. He's been around from the beginning. Then 15, we start getting the strengths of the church. There are none. There are no strengths to this church. Um, This church is in some serious trouble, I guess you could say as well. Um, The attitude Christ, they, they have this attitude uh, for Christ, and Christ basically says, really, I, I, I really think you're just indifferent to your faith. I mean, you don't really have a positive attitude towards me, and you can't be neutral, and you should never really have started this journey if you're going to just drift away into meaningless void or form. And so there's some harsh language in 16 we hear that I'm going to spit you. I'm going to vomit you. Maybe your version of the Bible says vomit. I mean, that's like you can't even stop that. It's just naturally going to happen, right? And so I'm going to vomit you out. And who gets to, who get? I think it's, remind me to come back to that, but this is Jesus judging, not, not us judging, because these are the failures of this church are they rely on riches, Okay. They, they don't need God. They got their, their, their medical center. They got their money. They got their insurance. They got their universal insurance. They, I mean, they're all good. You know, I mean, everything's great. They got their, they got their career and they got their 401k. They got their retirement. Everything's great. I mean, why would they need Jesus? You know, and so 
or their church has arrived. I mean, oh, they're the most popular church in town. They're all good. They've got their building built, and you know everybody's good. Everybody's just going to come because we turned the lights on. I mean, whatever it is, it's this lukewarmness has happened. They're spiritually impoverished. They they think that they have everything and they've arrived, but they haven't, and they don't even realize it. They can't see it. It's a very scary thing to, to think that how spiritually lost they are. And that's why I begin to think of the church in America and some churches in America. And there have some instructions. Repent. I mean, you got to repent. you got to turn from your attitude that you have. And God is the perfect coach. That's why I, I love that little, you know, where it says, uh, I reprove and discipline, right, in verse 19, those whom I love. He's the perfect coach. He's the perfect parent. He's not going to let them continue in this attitude. He's calling them, you know, to the carpet right now with this 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 letter here. And so, there are some promises that he makes to this church that Christ will invite you back into faith, um, and if you let him, um, he's there. Uh, he's got a place for you. You're going to sit down with him on his throne. You're going to have insurance of that. And I, and I like the imagery of this, sitting down with Christ on his throne, eating with him. Basically, you're going to have fellowship with him again. You're going to actually be about other of him and instead of other things. Uh, other things have taken the place of Christ, and now you can actually be in relationship with him and act have an active faith that's dynamic and, and listening to, to what Christ wants from you and for you. So, a couple of things, um, just side notes, and I'm going to get back to some questions as we come to a close. But, uh, verse 16, it says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Okay? That's harsh language. Again, who gets to judge whether somebody gets vomited out? Who's the answer? Who's talking? Jesus, right? So I don't, and you don't, get to say that that person is lukewarm and Jesus is going to vomit you out, okay? You don't get to do that. You're not not judge and jury. Only Jesus is judge and jury, okay? So remember that. Then also remember, a lot of times we, we unintentionally use the verse 20, out of its context. I stand at the door knocking, and all who hear my voice will open the door, and I will come in and I will eat with them. And I'm not saying that that's not a true characteristic of God, because that is true. But who is this letter being written to? What's the context? The church, right? Not your neighbor that doesn't know Jesus. I'm not saying that's not a good line to use with your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, but this is the church. This is literally a letter to a church. Like, hey, you say you're a Christian, you got it on your sign out there, but you know, I'm knocking at the door, and like, you aren't turning around. You're not letting me in. I'm. You're just an assembly of people. You're not assembly of believers or active, dynamic believers. Now that gets me back to. How do you think this church reflects our society, right? I mean, do you think this church reflects American culture and American churches at times? Yeah, so talk about that. How is that? How, how does it? When are we indifferent? What, what, where are we indifferent and some things? Mm-hmm. 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 Right, sure. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's the natural natural process of death, you know, for sure. It does happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and that is the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, because the overall church doesn't ultimately die. It's just that little portion of it does, but it's very relevant, very relevant. Yeah, I think that happens because people, they've arrived, everything's good, you know, we're great, we got our sanctuary, you know, we got all the people we need, we got our five kids in our children's ministry, and we love our five kids, and, you know, we're all good, and they're going to grow up, and, you know... They're, you know, we're going to celebrate their graduation someday, but who cares about the other 50 kids out there that don't come to our church because it's not any dynamic enough for them to come. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of these things that hit me as a pastor, and I'm like, wow, you know. So talk about overall um, dealing with with America. It's interesting, you know, we have a 9-11, and all of a sudden all the churches are packed, right? Because we all need Jesus again. Right. Because our prosperity is not helping us at all. We don't know when the terrorists are going to like take us out, you know. Um, so our insecure, our security of money isn't there anymore. It doesn't help us anymore. And so there's a lot of that happens throughout life. Uh, we see it a lot in our Christian culture of America. So any other thoughts on that? Mm hmm. Mhm. 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 Mm-hmm. Sure. And it's hard to, I agree fully with that, with that. Um, it, it's hard to think of America as a whole because technically not everybody is Christian. And so this wouldn't be a relevant, you know, technically a relevant letter to them. But the American churches, it would be a relevant letter of everything is about prosperity. Everything's about, you know getting and, and consumerism and, and, you know, and then we go to Africa and you see people and little children that have more joy than people around us and, and they don't have anything, right? They, they're being taken care of by our measly little offerings and leftover offerings that we have maybe and uh, not even our first fruits sometimes. And so, and then you, you go to other places, like the, the church in China is growing because it's being persecuted, and, and that's not stopping, but the church in Africa is growing, and, and a lot of it has because dependence on Christ and joy in Christ has nothing to do with, you know, the American dream. You know, I'm not saying the American dream is bad, but it's definitely fooled some folks for sure. So, um, um, anybody have any other thoughts on that? Comments? Um, you know, where have you been indifferent? What causes us to be indifferent? What causes us to be lukewarm? And what I mean by that is not five minutes of lukewarmness or, a, 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 as somebody said this morning in the men's, I mean, we have days we're lukewarm. It's just going to be that way, you know. It's like, but this is characteristic of this church. Like, it's fallen into this where it's on the that tipping point of death. So, a little bit more than just a couple of days. So, or a season. So, what does this tell us about us as a local church? Anybody have anything? What does it tell us tell us about our local church? Our responsibility to make disciples. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I that's always a great question. Um, when you're on fire, as we were talking with the men this morning, you're on fire, I'm on fire, somebody else on fire, then we got a bigger fire. And that's kind of, that's the way the church does work. And uh, I think that that makes it dynamic. And, uh, you know, it's it's raging, it has the spirit. I think that a church that is not on fire uh, tends to be about itself only. And it tends to be uh, just look inside of itself because it's not really trying to be on fire to affect. When you're on fire, you affect people. And and we talked about, so how can we, earlier conversation, how can we affect the world? How can we change the world? How can we change America? How can we change our church? To me, we I've probably said this before, but I've heard it and I use it as wisdom in my own life is you're not going to change the world. You're going to change your world. And so, for me as a pastor, I'm trying to affect Christians here at John Wesley as best I can. And those who might not be here, let's reach out, let's draw more and connect more. You, as individuals, members, or guests, or whatever, can affect wherever you find yourself and wherever church. And you can affect five, six people, okay? You can affect five or six youth. You can affect ten, you can affect ten youth. Whatever it is, whatever your time allots for you. And if you're on fire, those folks are going to feel it. That's going to be a spark, and it keeps it alive and moving. Um, so, and if everybody does that, then it's just this constant flame. It's constantly moving. God's moving. God's doing these stories. And and then you hear stories. I mean, we hear them all the time at, at John Wesley. We also are, you know, constantly, if you haven't, if you don't, if you've been around me for five years, you know I like to poke the bear, right? Um, I'm not going to keep you to be able to say, oh, we've arrived. We're all good. We're just, let's just go into the future. You know, it's like I'm going to change something just to make somebody mad, right? You might even have friends that don't like me because I've moved their cheese in the last five years. And so you, you, it's not going to happen. We're not going to grow lukewarm because we're going to always go where the Spirit wants us to go, and the Spirit doesn't want us to stay the same, right? It says right there, you know, it's like a coach, a good coach. If you're staying the same, you're going backwards, you know? Um, so I would say we have a lot of on-fire Christians for a lot of different things, and people have different causes, people have different strengths, and people have different gifts. And if you're using your strengths, your gifts... And or giving your gifts so that we can monetarily fund the mission and ministry of the church. All that stuff comes together and makes a church that's alive. And it has nothing to do only with numbers. It has to do with the spirit behind it. So that's kind of my take on it, Mona. So, um, and if if we're just settled, that's a problem. I'm talking a little bit more about that this Sunday as I talk about tradition and how. Some tradition can rob us of of the very commands and spirit of God. And some, I mean, tradition is good. I'll say that tradition is good. I mean, we need to have it. It's one of our um, pillars, you know, as a as a Wesleyan. We we use tradition to influence our interpretation of Scripture, and we don't want to get rid of some of the great traditions. And I'll again speak more on that on Sunday. But some things can, as Jesus said, can take you away from really where God wants you to go. So you have to be careful when they become more important than God. So any closing thoughts? Anybody have anything else? Um, before I sign off, uh, I'm going to share with you the pattern of the churches. If you want to write this down, you can. There is actually a pattern for these seven letters, and I'll just point them out to you. Church 1 and Church 7, okay, are, you have Church 1, Ephesus, and Church 7, which is Laodicea, and they are in grave danger of totally dying. They are like really scary bad, okay? Then you have Church 2, which is Smyrna, and you have Church 6. So you see how this is coming together in numbers. They're in excellent condition. They're in good spiritual health. 
And then you have the middle three churches. Church three is Pergamum. Church four is uh, Thyatira. And then church five is Sardis. And they're neither good or bad. They're kind of in between. They're kind of the you know a little bit uh, trying to figure out where they are. They do some good things, but then they have some other issues. And so it's very interesting to look at that one and seven, two and six, and then right there in the middle. Uh, they are grouping. So that's kind of the pattern of the churches as you look back in the seven letters. So we're going to be off next week, and then we'll be back in two weeks, and we're going to be talking about the rapture, and uh, we'll be able to look at the biblical understanding of the rapture or where we don't see the rapture and the fictitious side of things. And so basically I called it Exposing the Rapture. I like that. I think that's a good title. So it'll be very, very interesting. It'll help us springboard us into how we see the rest of the book as well. So go in peace. And y'all, uh, thanks for joining the party.